from InsureTech Ireland. This is InsureTech Radio, episode number 28. Welcome to InsureTech Radio. I'm Connor Sweetman. And normally, this is the podcast that teaches you about how technology is changing insurance. But this week, we have an amazing story with many lessons in leadership. Out of the corner of our eye, we saw this wall of white coming through what was already a wall of white because the, the, the visibility was pretty poor that day. And we saw it coming towards the... You, you, you just couldn't see the top of it or the sides of it. And it was just harrowing. So our, our Sherpa saw it before we saw it a couple of seconds and shouted at us to get inside. And so at that point, we ran inside into the tent, got under a table, wasn't really going to be of much use to us reading yeah, <laughs> when all is said and done <laughs> plastic garden furniture and the plastic tent isn't really going to make much of a difference but, but you, you do what you can I suppose you just have to put something between you and what's coming this week's guest is Paul Devaney Paul is an amateur mountaineer and is attempting to climb the seven summits which are the highest seven peaks on all seven continents he's climbed six out of the seven and he's made two attempts on Everest, but as you're going to hear, disaster struck both times. We speak about his adventures, how to manage risk on Everest, and about leadership in high-stress situations. Please enjoy. Well, Paul, you're very welcome to InsureTech Radio. How are you? Very good, thanks. I was hoping we could start kind of towards the end of the story, um, and then maybe go back from there. So, like, I want you to take me to, um, it's your second attempt at, at Everest and disaster strikes. I think I've heard you describe before. You're in the, uh, the mess tent playing cards. Can you take us to that moment and just kind of describe what was happening there? Right. So it was, it was the 25th of April, 2015, and we were at base camp, uh, getting ready, kind of relaxing that day and getting ready to head that night up to camp one for our first big rotation up the mountain. Um, we'd been in the ice fall the previous day, which is a kind of a, a frozen waterfall on a kind of a moving glacier that sits between base camp of Everest and camp one. Um, and we'd been in there doing some adaptation and some practice work the previous night and morning. And so we were back in, in camp, a little bit exhausted, just relaxing in our tent. We've got a big mess tent. There's a team of about nine of us, plus all of our Sherpa and support crew. Um, and our camp is located at the bottom of the icefall. So we can come out of the front door of the camp and just look straight up the icefall and up the route towards Everest. What does that um, look like? What does it look like? Um, it's, it's a kind of a sea of, of snow and ice in front of you. Base camp itself is, is not all snow and ice. It's, a, it's patchy. There's water flowing through bits of it. There's rock. Um, and it stretches for about a kilometer and a half. So base camp is quite a big, big area. And most people who trek to base camp will get to the front end of base camp, which was the opposite end to where we were. Uh, they'll take a picture beside the rock, the big rock there. And it's quite rocky. Um, the mountains have snow on them around them, but where they are at that side of camp isn't particularly snowy. And the more you get into camp, the more you've got slush and snow. Um, and it had snowed the previous day. So there was a bit of an accumulation of snow around the place. But generally, your terrain is rocky, slushy, um, and every team has kind of tried to burrow out their own area within that kilometer and a half where it's less rocky or where they can set down a series of tents and people can be reasonably comfortable for 
the month and a half that you're going to spend there. Wow. So we what were, then? so we, we were sat in base camp. Um, I think we were playing cards, I think in the mess tent. Uh, and we heard a rumble first, um, a noise. And we're, this isn't particularly unusual. Uh, you spend a long time in base camp, either preparing to go up the mountain or when you come back down after being up at some of the camps, just recovering. Uh, and so you hear a lot of rumbles. You hear a lot of little avalanches off the neighboring mountains. And, you know, you've got a vista of some of the biggest mountains in the world in your 360s. So there's little, you know, mini avalanches happening here, there and everywhere. And you kind of get accustomed to them after a while. But this one seemed very, very powerful, very strong. Um, so we thought, well, this is something big. Um, and the table started moving in front of us. And we thought, well, that's a bit unusual. And it was moving, you know, it wasn't It wasn't that the table was vibrating from the noise. The table was moving. Uh, and so we ran outside. I grabbed my camera that was in front of me, and I, I just hit the play button, which was on the top of it, and I just ran out to the front of the tent. And the entire glacier that base camp is sat on was just on the move. Um, we were moving laterally over and back. And we, we couldn't figure out what it was. Uh, my first thought was, well, the, the, the ice fall is probably collapsing. Um, and it had been, the weather hadn't been great that day. And so there's a lot of overcast, um, a lot of cloud. We couldn't see up into the ice fall very well. So the first thought is, this thing is coming down on top of us. What are we going to do? And does it really even matter if we try and turn around and run now? Um, but it, it, it took a while for us to to register and by a while i mean a good few seconds was to register that this is this is an earthquake and like i'd never associated earthquake with expeditions because there's never been any overlap between massive earthquakes in that region and big expeditions in that region the last big earthquake in nepal prior to that had been in i think 1934 it was a big one um the first summit of everest was 1953 so you know the correlation in one's mind wasn't there even though this is an area that is prone to earthquakes and it's not illogical to think that it could happen, but nobody at base camp would have any preparation really for earthquakes. And it wasn't in my thought process at all. And um, even I suppose with the, with the Sherpa, like, you know, it's been what, about two generations since the last kind of earthquake. So yeah, it wouldn't exactly be in their right. living memory either. Exactly right. And and their grandparents would talk about the big stupas collapsing and damaging Kathmandu. They would remember that. Um, but for their generation, that's a distant memory. Um, so, so that was the unusual thing as well. Um, when you're in the mountains, you know, you're, you're in the Sherpa's home territory and they know this place so well. Uh, and they're so good at what they do um, that when you see fear in their eyes, you know, something's wrong. And, and when we went outside, that's what we could see. They had no idea what was happening. And none of us did. And everything was moving. And when everything's moving, you lose you lose any point of reference, really, on how bad it is or what's going on. Um, and, and it looks like when you look around you, you just feel like the entire Himalayas are going somewhere. What's going on, you know? Um, so we were expecting everything to come from the icefall side because that was where the perceived danger is. The icefall is probably objectively one of the most dangerous parts of the whole route, getting from Camp 1 to Camp 2. Um, and so we expected that that might be collapsing and coming down, uh, not really knowing what to do about that conclusion. Um, what we didn't realize was that there had been a, a 7.8 magnitude earthquake um, in the Gurkha region, which was about 90 kilometers away. Um, and on the mountains behind us, which are maybe three, four hours away from where we were, it had knocked all of the cornices, all of the overlapping 
ice and snow off the tops of those mountains. It had fallen about a thousand meters and it had basically created a shockwave that then started to pick up everything in its path and it picked up snow and ice and rocks. And then eventually when it got to the edge of base camp, people and, uh, you know, equipment, kitchen equipment, everything became a missile. Um, and what, what we turned around. I've always thought, and I've heard you tell that story before. I was like, what did it actually sound like? Can you remember? We remember, I remember a very deep rumbling, very, very deep rumbling noise that wasn't familiar. So the, the first noise we heard initially wasn't a familiar noise. Then the first movement wasn't a familiar movement. So all of it was very unfamiliar because while we were used to hearing the noises, uh, that we hear every night when you're asleep in base camp with the small rumbles and everything mm. off various mountains. This was very different. This was a very deep rumble. Um, and, and then we saw basically out of the corner of our eye, we saw this wall of white coming through what was already a wall of white because the the, the visibility was pretty poor that day. And we saw it coming towards you. You, you just couldn't see the top of it or the sides of it. And it was just harrowing. So our, our Sherpa saw it before we saw it a couple of seconds and shouted at us to get inside. And so at that point, we ran inside into the tent, got under a table. Wasn't really going to be of much use to us, really. Yeah, I was wondering. <laughs> when all is said and done, <laughs> plastic garden furniture and a plastic tent isn't really going to make much of a difference. But, but you do you, what you can, I suppose. You just have to put something between you and what's coming. Um, and, you know, I'd been there the previous year and you're aware of what a massive avalanche does to people. It had killed a lot of people the year before. Some of them haven't been found yet, you know. So you're kind of tossing over all of that in those seconds in your head as well. But you're under a table. Just I remember thinking under the table, I wonder how far up the icefall it'll throw us. And have we any shot of getting out of this? So it's uh, it certainly gives you pause to think in the couple yeah. of seconds, that you, and you, you're waiting for a thing. You know it's there, and you're just waiting uh. for it to hit you. Now we we ended up being reasonably lucky that we were on the edge of base camp, on the far side of base camp, and by the time it got to us, a lot of the energy had gone out of it. So it blasted the tents. We got a hell of a snow covering. Um, we got nice and terrified, but we didn't get injured and damaged. Okay. And uh, did uh, was anyone hurt uh, on base camp that day? So when we got out of our, our tent and we're kind of trying to shake ourselves off and everything's covered in white, um, some folks started to get on the radio and they could hear the radios going and we could hear about problems in the middle of base camp. And we heard a couple of very familiar names of expedition companies, you know, like Jagged Globe in the UK and others, who had their tents in the middle of base camp. And we heard that there was oxygen needed. So the the crew started to just basically get all of their gear together and head out. And, you know, by the time we had got out into the middle of base camp, it was clear there was a heck of a lot of damage. And ultimately, at the end of that whole experience that day, uh, there was 19 people dead at base camp, which, you know, is a lot of people. It's, it's a huge amount of people for Everest. It was, it's the most people that have ever been killed in a season on Everest. So that itself is is, is a very, very big and dreadful thing. But like in base camp, base camp is perceived by, you know, climbers, Sherpa, everyone as being a safe place. That's why everyone puts all of their camps there. So for something to happen there rather than up at camp one or camp two or camp three seemed very alien to everyone. So it took a long time to, to process the fact that in this safe space for everyone, you know, mm. we lost 19 people and there was the guts of about 60 people in pretty bad shape and needed hospitalization fast. And how are you? 
How was I? Um, we had no physical injuries in our team. I was physically fine. Um, when I wandered out the first time out of our camp and you kind of climb over that little area that you built for your tents and you head out into base camp, you, you start walking into what looks like a plane crash. And you start to see the remnants on the outskirts of the central base camp where, you know, there's a sleeping bag thrown over here or there's a, you know, a, a tent or some kitchen equipment far off in the distance. Um, and then you start to become aware that there are no tents anywhere. There's no camps anywhere anymore. They're all gone. Every trace of them has been scattered to the four winds. Um, and, and you kind of start to become a little bit afraid because you don't know what you're walking into at that point. Um, and we got to the center of camp where the emergency, the, the, the Everest ER, the emergency people, the medics were, and they have kind of a semi-permanent presence there during the climbing season. So they have a tent that they manage and they offer uh, medical support to all the climbers throughout the uh, April and May that you're climbing Everest. Um, and when we got over to them, there's two medics, I remember, uh, a man and a woman. The woman was British. The man, I think, was American. And she was holding on to a, a climbing pole um, because her leg had been damaged. And I found out later that she had had an impact from something that flew through the middle of base camp that flattened her. She'd torn ligaments in her leg and she was on her feet and she was working. And the two of them were working hard. The snow around all of the area they were in was just red. Um, and they were, in, they were in deep medical work. They were trying to triage people. And so you, you kind of realize that you're in something here um, very quickly. Uh, and then you've got to figure out what you do, you know. So yeah. it, it's different reactions for different people. And even within our team, there was different reactions. Some people wanted to go and do something, and some people felt genuinely terrified. Um, and you can't impose on any particular person the instruction to go do something if they're terrified because everyone has a very different natural reaction to protect themselves. For some people, it's very, very important that they protect themselves from exposure to things that might haunt them for a very long time. And for other people, it's very important that they take part in it and are, you know, actually actively help because it gives them that therapeutic way of working this entire trauma that's going on around them out of their system. I, I think I'm one of those people, but there were people in our team that were of the other ilk as well. And you kind of have to make sure that, that they're protected from it as well as trying to help out as well. Um, so yeah, we got involved and we started trying to, to you know, help move people about a kilometer across to the far side of base camp, just basically injured people with, with blunt force trauma injuries or, or long bone injuries or different things like that. Um, where, you know, six of us would grab, grab the gurney and just basically carry the person across that terrain, rocky terrain across to the other side of base camp so that they could get some medical attention over there where there were, you know, camps available, uh, there was space available and the helicopters, if they eventually got there, were going to be over on that side, not in the middle of camp. Hmm. And I imagine as all this is happening, obviously working together and figuring out a way through it together is really important. So like, how did that manifest, I suppose? Like, obviously, you, you go over there and you work as a team together, but this is a completely different kind of test than the test that you're not necessarily prepared for mentally. So how how do you kind of lead each other through that kind of that kind of first couple of hours about figuring what to do and then actually executing? I think it's kind of baby steps in the first hour or so. So you, I, I was most of that time I was with uh, two of my climbing buddies, um, 
one guy from Mexico and a young guy from Norway. And you kind of keep an eye to make sure that everyone is still talking and everyone is still functioning and that we haven't, you haven't stretched anyone like an inch beyond their comfort zone to some degree. So you're kind of just watching everyone and saying, well, I don't know what to do next, but let's do this. Or these guys have asked us to go get water and bring it over to that camp because they're treating people in that camp. So let's the three of us do that. And then we'll go back there and figure out what the next thing is that we need to do. So if, if you, if you started trying to think about the entire, you know, amount of things that needed to be done in that moment, you cripple yourself um, with, with, you know, fear and anxiety and everything else. So we picked one thing and we said, let's do that until someone gives us direction for the next thing, or let's figure out while we're doing that, what the next logical thing might be to do. So the first thing we done was to carry people to the far side. When we got to the far side, I, I met a few guys that I knew from a previous expedition in Antarctica. One of them was leading the charge over there. Um, so I asked them, you know, what do you think we should do? What do you need? And then you get your next set of instructions for what might be the most logical thing to do. And while you're getting those instructions, you're also getting your bearings on the base camp. So you're, you're, you're figuring out, okay, well, the, the seriously injured are now in that camp there and I can see it and feel it and know what it might need. Now we're going over to where the impact injuries are, but the, the walking wounded, if you like. So I get a feel in there what they need. And then going between camps, you get a feel for what the people who are doing the organization might need. And you're just, you are to a large extent making it up as you go along in those first couple of hours to get a feel for your environment. But you're being helped to some degree by a handful of people who do take absolute charge of the situation. So the bigger expedition team leaders. So within base camp, you might have maybe 30 expedition teams of varying sizes. Um, some of those, the bigger expedition teams, let's say the International Mountain Guide team from America um, or the HIMEX team, which is Russell Bryce's team, they would have big, big numbers. And so they have a big support team, but they also have expedition leaders who have done this 30 times. Um, they have Sherpa who have been up and down this mountain more times than you could imagine. So they have an, a, a huge amount of expertise in there. And so they naturally became the people who stood on the rocks directing traffic with the radio in their hands saying, you know, we have one wounded woman on her way up. She's about 20 minutes out. Looks like she has a major leg injury and so on and so forth. So they were radioing all of that back. So within, within the space of maybe an hour, the people who had spent a lot of time in base camp and on expeditions were able to, to cobble together the basics of communication between the various camps and work out a routine for, okay, we should send walking wounded one way. We should send serious injuries another. Um, we should, you know, use a, this particular camp for food or whatever. So those basics were in place very quickly, which was very impressive to see. You were aware as you were walking around that the basics have been put in place here very, very quickly. That's very mm. impressive. So you, you were aware of how impressive some of what was going on was, even while you were in the trauma of it all. And then you were trying to work out, well, what's my role here? Because everyone has a role here. So what do I do? Do I supply water and food? Um, do I supply encouragement? Do I, mm. you know, have I, I have, I'm an engineer. Have I skills here that I can bring to bear? Um, you know, I, I, I'm physically trained to climb this mountain and I've been training for two years. So I, I'm physically able to carry people. 
um, and I'm adapted to high altitude, so I need to start using that. Um, so there's all those different things that are going on in the first couple of hours where you're trying to make yourself honestly useful rather than useless. Yeah. And it's, it, it's, I want to reflect on, so we're, we're speaking in uh, March of 2020. So the whole coronavirus has taken hold all over the world. And I think a lot of people would feel that, you know, well, how, like, like you felt that day, you know, how can I be useful in all of this? And it seemed, and quite strangely, it seems that the most useful thing that any of us can do is actually do nothing, stay at home, don't leave. Uh, and then you look outside, there doesn't seem to be anything obvious wrong when you look outside the window. But at the same time, it's a very, very uh, serious situation. So I'm just curious as to like, how do you, how do you think about those two experiences? Um, uh, you know, two, two total extremes, but also you kind of need to find meaning, uh, within both of them. Yeah, you do. And you need to find the satisfaction in the fact that you can't do anything in one of them. Um, there were people in base camp who did not add value to the situation, to put it mildly. <laughs> um, when the helicopters arrived, there were people who ran at them and damned So they panicked. They panicked and, and mm. could have caused incredible damage, um, put helicopters out of operation and meant that the whole operation went west in a very big way. So um, the, the, the panic, you know, can I think panic can manifest itself either in, you know, people taking direct action or people feeling like they can't do anything um, and then looking for something that they can do. The, the dichotomy, I guess, at the moment is that we're in this COVID pandemic now and people feel like they should be doing something. Um, and so they either want to get outside and help or they want to get outside because that's where surely something will be done. But the reality is that the doing of something is the staying inside. Um, yeah. My wife is, is on the front line in one of the biggest hospitals in London here. And, you know, at the time that we're recording this, the numbers are, are getting high. So, um, you know, for her, she she's appealing to people to just do what they do best by, you know, doing nothing for now. You will be required mm. to do something at a point in time, but, you know, nothing sometimes is something. And even for us, when, when we got back to our tents after a day of carrying people at altitude, you know, I mean, it, it's a it's a first world problem relative to what was going on in camp that day, but it takes it out of you. So you get back to your camp and you're absolutely just knackered. Um, and the people who didn't feel that they could leave the camp that day, you know, prepared meals or, you know, had, you know, met us with, with different assistants or decided to get us gear so that we were more comfortable. So they played a role in our recovery so that we could go back out and do something the next day or go back out and do a little bit more the next hour. So like there's, there's ways in which a lot of people can add a huge contribution for now. It just feels very weird as a species to sit inside and do nothing. And for that to be an advantageous thing. Mm. So we're going to have to get used to the value we're adding by not, actively doing things which is difficult for i think it's difficult for people to get their heads around yeah and i imagine especially for yourself like a very active guy clearly uh how does it feel for you not being able to hit the hills well i'm used to a bit of self-isolation um well that's true yeah when i was training for everest i i um i trained down at the university of limerick and they have an altitude house down there um, one of the houses on campus has actually been converted into an altitude house and so they, they filtered the air going into the house and 
they manage to pull out a lot of the oxygen out of the air and what they filter in can be set to the equivalent of an altitude. So I could be in the house at 2,500 meters. I could be in the house at 6,000 meters. Um, and I would spend a the vast majority of my day in that house going absolutely nowhere with nobody else in the house for the guts of a year. So I've had a little bit of experience of living in my own space. I think you're better trained than most. I, I'm better trained than most. I've le- learned to live with my own company a little bit better, but I, I openly admit that that's not how the majority <laughs> will cope. And for some people, especially people with anxiety, um, it, 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 it's very difficult to stay inside. Um, I, I am literally not going out at all now. I've not been going outside most of the time for the last two weeks since the numbers started to grow. Um, but, you know, I live in, a, in an apartment building that has 22 floors. The stairwell is never used. So, you know, I, I go out into the stairwell and I go up and down with a backpack on my back for an hour and a half or something like that. <laughs> I do my training that way. So I, I'm lucky that I get to I get to do that. I wish I could go out into, you know, big green space and do it there, but I don't have that luxury. But there's a lot of people who don't have the luxury of a 22-story building and an empty stairwell. So I regard myself as as pretty much being very lucky in that regard. You know, uh, that's a, a very good way of looking at it. Um, so that uh, experience at base camp is very different from your first experience at base camp, which I believe that was your first experience in mountaineering altogether, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, in in 2005. Um, I'd been living and working over in Hong Kong and um, I'd been playing Gaelic football actually in Hong Kong in the Asian Gaelic Games Tournament, which is a very competitive tournament. Um, so we've been doing a lot of pretty heavy training, probably more. What's the name of the club out there, sorry? It's the Hong Kong Gaelic Football Club. Oh, that's it. Okay. Yeah. So the, you, you, we played against teams from Shanghai, Beijing, Dubai, Taiwan, um, yeah, so it, was, it was very competitive and it was good fun and there was a lot of different folks. Irish, German, Aussies and Kiwis loved it because it was kind of similar to their sports. A lot of Brits playing it as well. So it was a wide gamut of people that were playing it. Um, and it was a very interesting way to meet people um, when you're out in a country on your own, you know. Mm. Um, so we've been training in very, it's very humid in, in, in Hong Kong. And the air sometimes isn't the best. There was a lot, at the time, there was a lot of coal smog coming down from mainland China. Um, so the visibility a lot of the time in Hong Kong was very poor um, and it was very humid. And you were doing pretty much senior championship level training, I might call it, um, in, in, in these conditions. So um, one of the folks at work said to me, look, you've been doing all that training before you head back to your base, which at the time was in, in the middle of England. Um, before you head back after your year, you should go to base camp and you know go to Everest Base Camp. And I'd never considered it. I'd always considered that sort of thing as for people with oxygen canisters and folks mm. that climb mountains. And I'd never really broken down that actually, no, that, that's an accessible thing that people can do. And you just need to plan it out and visualize it and train and you can do it. Um, so I took all that Gaelic football training and went went up the trail to base camp and got hooked. Um, and really? I just thought, this is amazing. It was, was there a, a particular moment or uh, that you're like, you're thinking, oh shite! Now I have to keep going. Or what was the the moment for you when you when you got hooked? I I, I read. A, I bought a couple of books with me on the way up. One of them was Edmund Hillary's book, oh. um, and the second one was was the, I suppose it's very stereotypical, but it's John Krakauer's Into Thin Air. Oh um, yeah. 
and which is you know it's it's the the it's the stereotype now in in climate to say that you got hooked from that book um but i i I'd read about the seven summits in that book and I thought, well, that's interesting. What's the seven summits? And I got more hooked on the seven summits bit of the book than I did about the Everest bit of the book, to be honest. Um, but when I got up there into base camp and there's a little peak called Kalapatar just beside base camp and uh, you get up to the top of Kalapatar, it's a bit of a slog to get up there. Um, and then when you get to the top, you turn around and it just takes your breath away. You can see, you know, there's Everest, there's Nutsi, there's Nupsi. And you're looking at this just, this 360 of the most amazing it doesn't look real that was my first mm. i took a picture of it and the picture looked like a, you know it looked like a, a painting it just it, none of it looked and felt real and I, I couldn't believe that you could do this just as an ordinary joe that you could just do that you could do a bit of training and get up to experience this sort of awe i thought it was always for other folks that were professional mountaineers and so on so that bit of it stuck out for me because i thought this is very a very interesting you know, opposite to how you spend your time at work. So, mm. you know, you, you, all of the intensity of work, well, you can actually spend seven days clearing your mind, reading books, and then get up to this. I couldn't believe it. I thought, this is, this is, there's something in this. I want to do more of it. But the seven summits bit kind of stuck out with me. And I thought, well, I'm going to do a bit of bit more digging around that and see what that's all about, you know. And what are the seven summits? So the seven summits, the highest on each one of the continents, You've got the, the highest in, um, in Europe is Elbrus in Russia. So a lot of folks might think it's, it's Mont Blanc, but Europe, the continent, um, ends at the Ural Mountains and uh, Elbrus is our side of the Ural Mountains. Um, and it's quite a bit higher than, um, than Mont Blanc. So that's the highest in Europe. Um, the highest in Africa is Kilimanjaro. The highest in North America is Denali in Alaska. The highest in South America is Aconcagua. On, uh, in Argentina, on the Argentina-Chile border. Um, the highest in Australia is a little peak called Kosciuszko. Um, the highest in Antarctica, which you don't really think about having mountains, is a peak called Vincent Massif. Um, and then the highest in the world and the highest in Asia is, of course, Everest. So I've heard of, like, as you say, kind of uh, normal people, I suppose, doing uh, Kosciuszko and Kilimanjaro um, and are, are they the two that that are kind of the most accessible or is there kind of uh, or what's the, what's the next one up from that I, I suppose what I'm getting at it really is like what represents the biggest jump into like serious mountaineering I would say that Denali in Alaska is the differentiator um, hmm. so it, there's a lot of folks at the Kili it's very accessible it has a hard summit day um, I think no matter who does it and how good they are the summit day is hard um, but it's a very accessible and doable mountain in a lot of ways. Elbrus in Russia has seen a big pickup in recent years of people doing it. So it can be said to be very accessible as well because it doesn't take a long time to get up there and get back. Um, but yeah, Denali is different because, you know, it's, it's a, it's a three week expedition effectively, um, where they land you on a glacier, the plane flies off and that's it. You're on, you're, you're in this remote region until you finish this thing. Seen a few week lads. Like, a few week lads, and also yeah. like because it's at it's above twenty thousand feet. So from an altitude perspective, it you know it's it's a differentiator it's in terms of your 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 capacity. So when you're at the likes of base camp, or you know when you're at the top of Kilimanjaro, say, um, you know you're operating at about five thousand five hundred to 
you know, let's say almost 6,000 meters, right? So you're in a region there of around Everest Base Camp where you've got about 60% of your lung capacity and you're at about, you know, maybe about 60% of your oxygen concentration that you'd have at sea level. Um, when you get above, you know, 6,000 meters and into the Denali's of the world, you're at 50% lung capacity and 50% oxygen concentration. And life just gets very hard between the 5,000s and the 6,000s, just as it does from the 6 to the 7s. So and what, are the, what are the physical symptoms? How does that feel? Like, what, or what do you notice? You notice a headache, I guess, would be the most common one. So anyone that goes above, let's say, 2,500 meters um, will feel altitude effects. It's not unusual for anyone to feel altitude effects. You can fly to some of the cities in South America, get off the plane in Quito, for example, in Ecuador. You're going to feel it. Um, some people that go skiing are going to feel it when they arrive at the resort. It's not uncommon to have a headache because your, your brain is basically trying to adjust to the new altitude. So there's two effects to altitude um, the, one of them is the is the air effect, if you like, or the hypoxic effect, and the other one is the pressure effect or the hyperbaric effect. So on the air effect, um, the higher you go, um, the less concentration of oxygen you have available to you. So uh, the oxygen molecules are further apart. So when you breathe in oxygen, basically you're not getting as much of it, or breathe in air, you're not getting as much oxygen into your system to convert into energy. So you've got this oxygen deficit, if you like. Um, which can cause you problems because your brain uses 50% of the oxygen that's absorbed from your into your body and all of your muscles and your organs need it. It's converted into energy. It's a key part of your existence. Um, so to have less concentration of that means that the body has got to equalize and figure out how to use less of it and how to produce more blood cells to carry around what is there in order to make up for the deficit of what's coming in. So your body has to do this adaptation, which takes a little bit of time. And while it's doing that, you feel, you feel terrible. So you'll feel a headache. You'll, it'll be miserable. You'll complain like hell. You go to sleep. You wake up the next morning. You'll be perfectly fine. Or in some cases, you wake up the next morning and you're not perfectly fine. And your body just doesn't have a good natural adaptation. And that, that can happen. And it's really hard to know who are the people who have great natural adaptation and who are the people who don't and you don't really know until you go which one of those you are um, on the hyperbaric side of it the higher you climb into the atmosphere the less atmosphere there is above you pressuring down on you so you've got a difference of pressure now on your body compared to at sea level your brain is sitting in the fluid your lungs are sitting in the fluid uh, that different differential in pressure has an effect on the functionality of your brain and on your lungs and in the most acute um, circumstances, it can cause perforations of those areas around them. It can cause uh, liquid to leak into your lungs. It can cause liquid to leak into your brain. So it can be very serious and it can cause strokes and it can cause uh, pulmonary edemas and cerebral edemas. So all of the altitude effects are very dangerous when they get to their acute form. Um, mm. The first you're going to feel of them is likely that you just feel a headache and just don't feel like eating and want to just go to bed. And most cases, people can sleep it off. They may take a little bit of Diamox when they go to bed, which is some, some medicine that can help your body to adapt. Um, but if you're not adapting well, there's only one direction you can go. If you're feeling a headache the next day, you have to go back down, rest it out. And it may be that you're slow to adapt. So you might take a day extra and just go down to the local village and sit there and figure it out. 
Um, but if it's not getting better, and it doesn't matter how high you are on the mountain, if it's not getting better, uh, you have to descend in order for the for the symptoms of that to go away. Hmm. And for you, like, so how many summits did you go through kind of um, whilst maintaining your full-time job? Because I do know you trained full-time for a period of time. So, so like, wh- when did you decide, at what point did you make the decision to uh, take this, you know, that, that good bit more seriously? That was um, before Antarctica. So when I'd done five of them and there was two left, um, we had mm-hmm. Antarctica and Everest left. And they're two massive expeditions. There's a lot of money involved. Um, there's a lot of preparation involved. And I felt like I wanted to give those to my full time. But prior to that, so Akinkagua, um, you know, uh, McKinley, Kilimanjaro, Elbrus, Kosciuszko, that was all that and all of the preparation around that, which is the winter skills, the alpine skills courses and the other peaks that you climb to get good at climbing. Um, that was all done basically using all of the spare time you had while you were working. So every every weekend that was available in decent and not so decent weather and all of your vacation time became mountain time. And what, what was it like? When, or how did you actually even devise a training plan for this? For you, the you said you were in Limerick, but uh, like how do you replicate the conditions that you're going to be, other than you said the altitude house, but how do you actually train for an effective way in Ireland like it's um we don't have the peaks that say you would have in Colorado if you were training so you can't train outdoors at altitude on big peaks so you've got to do a lot of repetitive stuff on small peaks um so I would spend a lot of my time I was based in Limerick so I would go out to Keeper Hill in Limerick and I would go up and down that multiple times with big loads in your back um, I got involved with the with the uh, Outdoor Pursuits Club at the university, and they would go out every weekend either to the Galtees or the Knockmel Downs or down to Karen Tuchel or whatever. So I would go along, but I would be carrying a significant amount more than anyone else on my back. So you go out with maybe 25 kilos or more on your back uh, and go up these mountains and back down these mountains. And sometimes I would get on the bike, uh, get down to Karen Tuchel, fly um, bike down to Kerry, stay in Killarney, get up the next day, go up and down Carantool a few times, and then back on the bike and back up to Limerick. Um, so you, you kind of found way, what you're trying to do is you're trying to train your body in endurance more than anything else. Mm. And you're trying to get the muscle memory used to being out and about on different rock and steep terrain. So you don't need necessarily to have a very high mountain to do that. You could do that on on Donard, you could do that on, on Crow Patrick, you could do that on any peak you know, that, that can give you, you know, good different terrain that has reasonable steep sections. And then when you put, put a bag in your back and go for seven or eight hours, that you're going to get a lot out of it. Mm. And um, so tell me about your first then attempt at Everest. You so actually, so you arrived back in base camp after what, 10 years, eight, nine years? What was it? Yeah, it was, uh, so 2005 was the first time in 2014. Was 2014. Like, what was that like stepping back into base camp after all? Uh, you know, you uh, you turn up the first time and you're kind of naive. You're just after finishing uh, into thin air. What's it like stepping onto base camp the second time? It was nice because you're you're in a different world and you're a different person in that world as well. So you're coming back to a to something that you you're not an expert in, but you're you have more expertise in than the first time. Mm-hmm. You kind of naively stood there, and like we'd spent. Myself and the guys that I climbed with had spent that decade or almost a decade 
you know, building up this big reservoir of, of skill and experience, you know, lots of winter skills courses in Scotland and Alpine skills courses in the Alps. And like we climb every, every place we went, we tried to climb their highest peak, uh, which became a real annoyance to anyone that was around us. But, um, you know, so we built up this big vat of, of experience and then to have, you know, six of the seven summits behind you, you felt, okay, this is interesting. This is nice. It's nice to be back here with the knowledge that we have and with the ambition that we now have to not just stop here to go the whole way to the top. Because to be honest with you, for most of the journey, it doesn't really enter your head that you're going to have the ability to finish this thing out and that you're ever going to get to a level where you could do something like Everest. So when you get past something like Denali in Alaska and you realize, well, that's a big expedition. We learned a lot. We were also really good at it. We may have a shot at this. That's when you start to form in your own head this idea that actually we might be able to do this in real terms. We need to start thinking about this in real terms. So you're coming back knowing the mountain intimately now rather than mm. being a tourist coming to base camp. And you're, it's, it's very reverential because, you know, your respect for the mountain, you've studied the amount of people that have climbed it and not climbed it. Um, so you're coming back with all of this renewed enthusiasm and respect for the area you're in. And like you know, it's no secret that it is a is a is it a da- it's a dangerous thing to to attempt, and you know people die every year on Everest. And I'm just so like that risk is obvious. And I'm just wondering how you actually think about risk management because obviously you're, you're not just going into this. Um, uh, I'm flying by the seat of your pants. I, I imagine you plan for and mitigate risk quite well. But do you, can you give us an example of of how you actually think through uh, p- particular scenarios that may come up? So for you're right in saying we we plan every little bit and piece of this, and I suppose I don't know whether being an engineer you do a little bit more of that or not. I, maybe, I think other people do just as much. But I, I'm an engineer. I love numbers. I love stats. So you know I studied each of the phases from base camp to camp one, camp one across to Western Queen to camp two, camp two up to the phase to camp three, camp three to camp four, and then up to the summit. So you're studying along the way everything from what's the terrain looking like, what does it feel like, how technical is it on that piece of terrain, how dangerous is it? And then you also look at the more morbid things, such as, okay, well, what's the death rate in each one of those areas? The people that have died there, predominantly what's caused them to die in that area of the mountain? You look at the things that you think are within your control, you have to accept there's a bunch of things in there that are completely outside of your control. Um, And you're trying to rationalize, well, if I understand all of the things that are in my control, and if I master as much as I can all of those things, small and big, um, I'll have a better chance of of being agile when I meet the things that are out of my control. So, for example, when you're crossing from base camp to camp one, uh, you cross crevasses, pretty big crevasses, a lot of them uh, on the route. And, um, so crevasse, sorry, is what, is what exactly? Basically a massive chasm in the ice. Okay. Um, so it's quite daunting, I imagine, to look at and look down. Quite right. And you, yeah. you arrive at this and there's a, there's a big ladder, aluminium ladder spanned across it. And some of them, there's two or three aluminium ladders spanned across it. And so now you've got to get up on this aluminium ladder. Cross are you on your hands and knees or are you, uh, how are you actually walking across it? So some people will go hands and knees. What they try and do is um, for the icefall, um, every year there's a group of very experienced climbers and Sherpa who come together called the Icefall Doctors. Um, and they basically go through the icefall every year. And based on the conditions of that year, they figure out a route that 
probably best suits climbers for that season. Um, sometimes it's on the left side, sometimes it's on the right. It depends on where rockfall is happening predominantly. It depends on a lot of snow and ice conditions. It depends on whether there's overlaying ice and snow on anything. So they'll plot a route, and then on that route, they will set ladders. Um, and those ladders will move around, and sometimes they'll fall and collapse and have to be redone during the season because the entire ice fall is moving. Um, so they're doing the best to try and figure out a brilliant route, and they always nail it. So it's the, the route on both years I was there was absolutely amazing. So um, so what we do is we follow that route. So you're coming up to a ladder that's already been placed there, and what they'll do is they'll place uh, guide ropes on each side of the ladder that you can kind of hold on to. Now, you and the guide ropes can both go into the crevasse <laughs> along with the ladder, right? The whole lot can come up and go. And if you fall off the ladder, you could t- turn the whole lot over and bring it all down into the crevasse, which is, so it's not a, it's not a, none of this is guaranteed safety in any way. But yeah. what it does is it gives you the ability when you get up, I, I like to cross them standing up, um, to kind of hold on to your guide ropes, uh, partly just to give you that little bit of extra balance while you're going across it. So in order to prepare for that, um, I went, when I was in Limerick, I went out to, I think it was B&Q and I bought a ladder and I went to the UL Arena. Um, went down onto the corner of the track in the arena and got two massive boxes that people use to jump up on when they're doing exercise and put the ladder across two of those, got my crampons, the sharp points that you put onto your boots, got my boots on, got my gear on, got up onto the ladder, and I would spend my Saturday mornings going over and back and over and back, testing, you know, is there any part of this that's sticking when I go to lift my foot? Because when you go to lift your, you can imagine you go across two ladders. Every time you lift your boot to put it down, it's a big event in your life, right? So, <laughs> so yeah, you're already, I hear what you're saying. You're already focused, to put it mildly. So, um, <laughs> so you don't want to go to pull up your boot and all of a sudden something sticks and it throws you off balance and you're in the crevasse. So I would have the angle grinder out then afterwards trying to figure out how I can smoothen out the back of them so that there was no... Uh, there was no point where the crampons were sticking with the corrugations on the back of the step on the ladder and so on. So you're, you're just trying to, you're trying to de-risk as much of the known universe as you possibly can. But that requires you to know the universe. You've got to sit down and you've got to study the mountain. You've got to study every bit of it. You've got to look at what people done before. There's a lot of, there's a lot of great resources now on the internet. So there's a lot of YouTube videos that people have made of going up different parts of the mountain. So you get glued to those and you try and work out with the map beside you, how you can equate what you're seeing on the screen to the experience, the terrain, your planning, everything else. And what part of that entire experience do you feel unprepared for? That's one part of the preparation. Another is visualization. So um, part of my training was visualization and, and yoga to try and work on breathing techniques to maximize lung capacity. Um, And my yoga instructor would go through a visualization process with me where she actually sat down herself and studied the mountain. And then she taught me as she's got me in a kind of a, a a relaxed position, she would talk me through going through the icefall and then getting to camp one and then going across to Western Coombe and getting to count two and so on. So, and I bought all of those recordings with me to the mountain and I would listen to them while I was in my tent at nighttime just to try and center you and work out, okay, well, we're, this is a project. And within this project, there's little pockets of preparation. One of them is understanding what you're about to get into and, and relate all of the preparation that you have done 
to that particular scenario so that you have the confidence to do it as well as you can possibly do, knowing that there's going to be a whole load of unknowns thrown at you when you get up there. And speaking of uh, unknown, so you you didn't get a chance to make your first attempt to Everest because um, something happened the day before you arrived at base camp. Could you uh, sh- share that with us? So yeah, we 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 were about twenty odd days into the expedition, and you kind of slowly meander your way towards base camp. When you're climbing it, you go very slowly towards base camp by climbing a whole lot of mountains on the way. So we were up one of those mountains. Um, at one stage on the, I think the 19th or the 18th of April. Um, and it was a pretty high mountain, about 6,100 meters. So it was comparable with the height of Camp 1, which is why we were climbing it, so that we were adapted to Camp 1 before we even got to base camp. Um, and we were up this peak. Um, it was a long day, pretty tiresome. We got up to the top, and you could see right down into base camp, and you could see the Kumbu Ice Fall straight across the way from you. You could see Everest straight across, and it was a beautiful day. Um, and what we didn't realize at the time, because we'd heard all the rumbles, but you're used to the rumbles, as I said. So we didn't realize that um, across the way on Everest, um, there were a few teams of Sherpa that were preparing Camp 1 for the onslaught of climbers in the week or so that was to come afterwards. So they were bringing up some basic equipment to get Camp 1 ready. Uh, and as they were climbing up through the icefall and meandering through all of these pillars of ice and snow, um, a massive chunk of ice broke off the left side of the icefall and came thundering down uh, on top of them. So it came down at, at incredible speed, um, killed 16 of them instantly, and there was about six Sherpa that were pretty badly injured and wouldn't be able to work again. So, so you're looking across and you've no idea, w- no idea. What's, what's unfolding across the way? No idea. We got, we got back down off the mountain. We, we were walking into the little village at the bottom of the peak that we had climbed. And I actually met an Irish climber. I met Pat Falvey as oh, yeah. I was walking along. And I said, Pat, how are you doing? He said, did you hear the news? And he relayed to me what had happened. And at that stage, the, the numbers were still undetermined. So people had an idea of how big it might be. But the numbers he was quoting at that point, which were pretty correct, um, were the biggest that had ever been in the history of Everest. And I remember thinking, that's big. That's a big event. And then you get inside with your Sherpa and you sit around and you realize that they know these guys. Um, And now they're worrying about their uncle or their cousin or their buddy. Is it one of those? Is he okay? And so the whole the whole mission took on a very different shape and size very quickly, just partly because of the magnitude of what had happened, and partly because you know the Sherpa group and and the the, the, the mountain worker group, if you like, is a very very tight knit community, and we're all dependent on each other up there. And you become aware that these guys need our help now. Mm-hmm. Um, so we wandered into base camp the next morning, um, and when we got in there, the, the helicopters had been in and done this sort of long line rescues of as many as they could out. And they managed to repatriate, I think, 13 of the 16 people back to their families, but three of them still haven't been found. So it was a, it was an, a woeful trauma for, for the entire Kumbu Valley, for the Sherpa community. Um, and that unfolded in different ways then in the days that followed in a lot of anger that there wasn't enough support available when it was needed in the aftermath a lot of anger at the response from the government in terms of compensation. And it kind of peeled back so a layer that had been waiting a long time to be peeled back. 
in terms of you know the danger levels that Sherpas live in and around during the season and the lack of any real robust support for them in country. Um, and it became a, a massive big industrial dispute between the Sherpa on the mountain and the government in Kathmandu, which, you know, you talk about leadership, um, it was very, very badly handled initially by the government who, who offered a very small amount of compensation and angered the entire community um, and then sought to turn that around and improve it. But with every one of the meetings seemed to be angering the community even more. Mm-hmm. So we ended up in a week-long uh, series of meetings, very angry and loud meetings at base camp, uh, meetings some of which we were in and some of which we weren't because they were in Nepali. Um, the government ministers, some of them came up to base camp. I actually met the tourism minister while I was walking through base camp uh, at one stage uh, for negotiations. Um, some people went to base uh, down to Kathmandu for negotiations. And really, people were trying to say, well, what do we do now? You know, there's been a lot. This is a big thing now. People need help. A lot of folks have died. Do we continue with the season? Because this is a big part of, you know, everyone's lives here in terms of earnings and revenue in the region and everything else. Or do we simply stop because this is a big event? Um, and nobody really had the right answer to that. The, the answer seems obvious that you should stop because something big has happened. Um, but, you know, the reality is a little bit more nuanced in that, you know, everyone on the mountain that works on the mountain, um, this is their big two months to earn all of the money required for the year to keep their kids in school and to do all of the things and the ambitions that they have for that particular year. So a cancellation in, in that part of the world is a big disaster. Um, so it, the, yeah, a week of, of industrial dispute and meetings ended up um, with the cancellation of the season on, on the Nepali side for the very first time. Uh, and then the following year, was it the following year you were back again where there was the earthquake? The following year, I decided because I'd spent so long, including with the altitude house training, you know, focused on on getting right for this. I thought, well, I either go back to work now or I push on and see, will I do this again? And if I do it again, sure, what's the chances anything would happen two years in a row um, Mm. and all of that? So I decided for good or for ill that I would would just keep going with the training and push on and work out how to... funded and work out how to prepare and work out all of the other things. And we, we changed around all of the expedition for the second year. So myself and the expedition owner sat down and redesigned the itinerary. And we redesigned ourselves out of the icefall for a good chunk of the mission uh, because of the danger. So we spent a chunk of the mission somewhere else training on a different peak called Island Peak, uh, doing our preparation there so that we could cut down the amount of travel you do. Because when you climb Everest, you don't progressively climb the mountain. You you know, in one go, you, you climb up to camp one, then back to base camp and rest a few days. And then you're going to go camp one, camp two. You're going to rest a couple of days in camp two to get used to that. Then camp one, then base camp. Then you're going to rest a few days. Then you're going to go camp one, camp two, camp three. You might go on oxygen, supplemental oxygen for the first time in camp three. You might walk up and touch the Lotse face, back down to camp to camp three, then back down to camp two, but then back down to camp one. So you, you go up and down like three or four times each time you're going through the icefall um, and then you're looking for that window to then go for the summit where you go camp two, camp three, camp four, summit, camp four, camp two, home. Um, so we were looking at, well, how can we redesign this now so we don't have a lot of these rotations, they're called, through the icefall. And so could we divert some of our attention away from Everest 
and towards a different peak and do our preparation adaptation there until we really have to go to Everest and then get stuck in. So we redesigned the mission. Um, the, the new route that year in 2015 was totally changed to move it to the whole other side of the, of the icefall. We changed the location of our camp, which proved very fortunate because if we were in the location of 2014, we wouldn't have survived the avalanche. Um, and, um, yeah, some of those things that were done by design and some of those things were done entirely by accident. The changing of location was not by design. Uh, it just worked out that we weren't in the same place as the year before, which was a great piece of luck, but there was a lot of design in what we tried to do for 2015. But in the end, um, you know, mother nature got ahead of us. Yeah. And so, so what happens after in those few days, um, did they cancel the season again? Yeah, the, the, the morning after the earthquake, uh, the helicopters arrived to take all of the, the injured people. So we, by the time the helicopters arrived at about 6 a.m. the next morning, there was 19 people deceased. Um, and there was maybe about 60 people that needed to be evacuated. So the evacuation started very quickly. So if people got involved in carrying people to the helicopters, uh, trying to clean out and clear some of the tents and so on. Um, so... To be fair, the pilot's done an incredible job. Um, there are helicopters dedicated to the Kumbu Valley and to the Everest region. So a couple of those helicopters pushed up where the weather got a little bit better and they poked right up into Camp 1 and Camp 2 and lifted people out of those camps and brought them back down. Because the entire icefall that I talked about previously, once the earthquake happened, it got tossed around like, like you know, toy yeah. bricks. All so, the ladders get torn off, I assume. Ladders got torn off. The entire route got destroyed. Um, so for And at the time, there was maybe about 100 climbers up at Camp 1. And there were climbers up at Camp 2. And I knew some of them. Um, so th- those climbers have got to all route their way back down to base camp now. So the, the, the probability of them getting down in one piece with an icefall that was now completely new and destroyed, nil. Um, so the problem that people had was, well, what do we do here? We've got like maybe about 170 people stranded on the high mountain on Everest. We've also got people in other valleys somewhere else that need help. Um, but, you know, you've you've got to push helicopters to both of them. You, can, you know, it's difficult to decide, well, you know, I'm going to go to this valley, but I'm not going to pick up these people over here because in the end, those people would not have got down off the mountain at all if there wasn't a route via the helicopters. So the helicopter spent that morning doing the most amazing acrobatics to get people down to base camp. Um, and once they got everyone down, then those helicopters went into the different valleys around to do different relief work as well. Um, so we stayed in base camp that day. There was an aftershock that morning, which we were told was coming, but it doesn't matter how many times somebody tells you an aftershock is coming, you're not ready for it. And it was terrifying because really? you know what's coming now. Um, whereas you didn't know the earthquake was happening when it was happening the first time, you know the aftershock is coming. And when you start to feel it and it starts to come, it is utterly terrifying. I think that was probably one of the more terrifying parts of the whole thing. Um, and did that feel worse because you knew that there was that, there was that anticipation? It did. It did. It, it certainly felt more terrifying. Um, and also, like you're, you're looking around, you know, for the very first time at base camp to all these mountains that are a long way away from you, but they're surrounding you. And you're looking at the ice and snow up at the top of them as an enemy now. You're looking and thinking, well, if it could come from behind us three hours away and flatten everything, any of this is now a danger zone. So the entire safety 
net that you felt there is gone. Um, and so we made a decision that we couldn't guarantee. We didn't know how many aftershocks there were going to be. You don't know at that point whether you're at the beginning of a series of quakes or whether you're at the end of it. You just don't yeah. know. So you've got to look around you and make a rational decision about, A, can you add any more value where you are? And B, is it safe where you are? Should you stay there or should you go? Because if it was safer there, then it might be better to wait things out there rather than going down into the valleys where it might be a complete mess. So you're making, you're trying to kind of put all those options on the table and work out, well, for the safety of the group, what's the best thing to do? And we decided that it, it, there's no guarantee that it's safe any longer at base camp and that there's no guarantee that what happened the day before wouldn't happen again. Um, so we decided to pack up when everyone else was packing up after they'd got everyone down from high camp and after all of the injured had been ferried away in helicopters, uh, we decided that we would uh, effectively that we would pack up and leave base camp. So we, we trekked down about seven or eight hours to a village called Furiche where there's a medical little medical hut down there. And we basically just stayed there for days and days and days and just waited it out. Now, a lot of folks went past us to the helicopters and went down to Kathmandu and got out of country. We were hearing reports from Kathmandu that it was it was just turmoil. We'd heard that the airport runway had split in two. We'd heard that there was fights at the um, at the airport in Lukla, which is the local airport that you go to to go to base camp. So you go from Lukla to Kathmandu to get back. So we'd heard all of these stories and you know, you're trying to decipher what's real and what's not, but you know, you're aware that there's a big urban center below you and it's not going to be in good shape. And so you have to figure out, are you adding or, or are you making things worse or are you making things better by going down into that urban center? And should you not just stay where you are until you can figure out what best to do? And you're surrounded by a group of people that you have partly got responsibility for as well. So, um, yeah, we, we waited it out. Um, and during that period, you know, you're surrounded by the Sherpa who, you know, our guides and our team, our, our expedition leader, they all live in a region. They all live in the one region um, together. And there's a glacial lake at the end of their village. So they were terrified about what was happening at home. So you become aware that for you, you're worried about whether or not you're being useful and when you're going to get home. For them, they're worrying about whether they have a home. And whether yeah. or not their family is gone. And like that's, uh, so you're trying to do your best to, you know, keep them positive. And they also want to do positive things rather than think about it. So, you know, they want the people in, in the middle of crisis actually want to be cheered up as well. And you think, well, there's no place for cheer. This is a very serious situation, but actually, you know, even when we went out doing disaster relief and a few days afterwards with the Nepal Ireland society, when I went out with the doctors, they wanted to sing on the bus and drink beer on the way back because they had to cheer themselves up because the next day they were going to do it again. And you can't continue on a, you know, on, 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 on a train of, of, you know, misery and this is awful and negativity all the time. You have to introduce positivity even where you feel that it doesn't belong at that particular point in time. So we were trying to keep them positive, but we, we, re we realized, no, we need to get out of here because they need to get back to their families. So when, when everyone felt it was time to go, including the Sherpa, we said, let's trek down back to Lukla. And we were trekking on probably one of the busiest trekking routes in the world, completely alone, uh, which wow. was very, very eerie, down through a village called um, Namche, which is a big village, big town, and there was nobody in it, um, and down to Lukla. We got down to Lukla, and eventually we got a helicopter out, um, 
and down to Kathmandu. And then you became aware of the size, magnitude of the thing down in Kathmandu, where there was a huge amount of destruction. Um, and I decided, rather than going home, at that stage, you think, well, look, at you've been trained at this now for a few years. You have a lot of capabilities that you can bring to bear here. You've got a following at home that you can harness to get a bit of money together for these folks. So you'd be as well here doing something as at home, whinging about the fact that, you know, all that happened. So mm. I got involved with the Nepal Ireland Society and a group of us, uh, mostly Nepalese, um, would basically meet every day and work out how do we get, how do we use any of the money being raised at home to get, you know, supplies and how do we get the supplies into the villages? So I ended up on these uh, excursions out to all of the villages to build medical camps or to provide different food and materials. And it was an eye opener just seeing really? destruction in the Kathmandu villages. And partway through that, about the 15th of May, um, we had a circuit, second earthquake, totally separate earthquake, which was a big one as well. I think it was about 6.8 or 7. Um, and ha- being in an earthquake in an urban environment is then a whole different level of terror because, you know, you're looking around at all the buildings and wondering which one of them is going to topple down on you. So um, you became aware that these people are now living in- with this now and this is all new and they don't know when it's going to start or end again. Um, but they had the level of destruction and the level of of change that the locals were going to have to endure for quite a long time really, really came home. I, I, at one stage, I was in the big public park, which had converted into a tent city, basically, and the Chinese government had provided all of the tents. So people didn't want to, even if their house wasn't damaged, they didn't want to live in their house because they were wow. So everyone would live in the park in these big tents. And then there was this really crappy, awful tent on the corner. And I went down to the crappy tent and I looked in and there was three fairly young lads in there studying. They were learning Korean. I said, what the, geez, what the hell are you doing learning Korean? <laughs> and they said, well, if we learn Korean, we can get to Korea, get jobs, get money, and repair our house. I thought, wow. well, that, that's, a, that, that's a fairly candid way of dealing with the situation. <laughs> you know. So I've, I found the locals had the most incredible plain-speaking, plain-thinking way of looking at the situation, which is, this has happened. How do we turn this around? And for you, uh, when you actually, when you were considering and reflecting upon all that happening at the same time, was there any part of you that was like, well, this is my second time up here? Was there any, was there a kind of a, were you kind of reflecting on your own kind of ambition to achieve this summit at the time at all? I was for an instant. I remember when I came out of the tent when it started moving and I stood outside and I realized, oh, something's gone horribly wrong here. I, for a second, I remember going, oh, crap, it's over. Mm. Uh, and you have that for an instant and then you snap out of it and you realize, oh no, there's something very serious going on. But it it would be, I, I don't know, it would be inhuman almost not to think for a second that you spent all of these years of your life on something and now you can't do it. You you you're, you will feel sad about that. You, you might even feel a little bit angry about it in some circumstances. Um, and, you know, it's a lot of money that you've pumped into it which you spent a lifetime trying to earn, which is gone as well. But, you know, and that's why I'm really glad that I spent the extra time afterwards in Kathmandu, you know, helping out with the relief work, because it gave me a great deal of perspective in terms of, yes, you've lost a great deal here, but there's a heck of a lot of people who have lost an awful lot more. So wise up and snap out of it. You can get back to the mountain, you know, you're going to have to be a little bit more creative to do that, but you can do it. These people 
they're going to need you. So I think that was a that was a very good experience for me. It's a good experience for anyone to go through, even though you don't ever want to go through it. It was it was good to have that perspective at the end. And I think if I'd gone home straight away, I might have sat at home and, you know, you, you can't say it to anyone because it's an awful thing to think. So you basically just are stuck with the feeling of, oh, crap, it didn't happen. What am I going to do? But, you know, for me, I had I felt like I came away with a little bit more perspective on it. And, yeah, I was sad. And it, it's, you know, I still haven't been back yet. And I'm fighting to get back to the mountain to climb it. Um, but it's a big chunk of your life that's uh, that, that's invested in it and still will be invested in it. And it's quite an invasive part of your life as well. So what's the plan now for the seventh summit? Uh, have you um, ha- or have you even made a plan to get back to Everest? It, it, I have uh, I have a scribbled plan. There's always a <laughs> plan somewhere. Um, I, I have a plan to get back. Now, I didn't go back on the mountains for a couple of years after because I didn't. It's amazing when you set out such a specific project like the Seven Summits and you've got it down to this de- the finest detail and you know exactly the year it's going to end. Your brain wires all of that in and it, it figures out, well, okay, I'm at year seven now and it's not done, so what's going on? I'm at year eight. It's not done. What's going on? And it completely switches off in your brain entirely on year eight. So once you go past that year seven, it's almost as if your body doesn't give you the tolerance to carry this thing on forever. Um, so you have to kind of reinvent your own vigor for it. You've got to mm. go out into the hills and get back your own mojo for doing this sort of thing. Because when you go and do it, you have to be fanatical about it. You have to really be so absorbed. And if you're not, you won't do it well and you may not come back. So you've got to really want it at that point. It can't be something you're doing for the sake of finishing something. It has to be something you really, really want to do. So I've had to spend some time you know, getting that that spark back in it after what had happened in 2014 and 2015. Um, I got back in the hills a little bit last year in Slovenia, and uh, I got back in the hills this year uh, in the volcanoes just before all the shutdown happened. I was at the beginning of January over in Ecuador climbing volcanoes, and that was part of the preparation to hopefully make make a break for the mountain next year, 2021. Uh We'll see. Um, they've closed Everest this year, obviously, because of the COVID-19 situation. So the downside of that for me, it's a very it's a very first world problem, again, is that there's going to be a heck of a lot of people on the mountain next year. Um, oh, yeah. And the mountains had a lot of years now of overcrowding. There are some problems on the Nepal side in particular with just way too many people, way too many of them, um, you know, not with the right level of qualification or experience either. So, you know, if next year is going to be all of the people from this year that didn't get to go as well as the natural amount that would go in a particular year, it's going to be a mega year next year. And I'm not sure that I want to be stuck in a queue, um, you know, on some day with that many people. So next year might not be the best year. When I look at the risk assessment, I look at next year and I see, you know, the biggest thing on my risk assessment is numbers. Um, So it may have to be, 22. I was hoping it was going to be 2021 because there's that alignment with um, with the first ever uh, reconnaissance expedition to look at the possibility of climbing Everest was in 1921, and it was led by Charles Howard Bury from Belvedere House in County Westmeath. So All right. it was a nice little link back to Ireland and the Midlands there um, for, for the 100th anniversary of that. But, I mean, people will climb it next year. Some Irish will climb it next year. I have to make a decision as to whether it's right for me and whether I like the risk or not of that many people haven't been there a couple of times. 
Um, and the mountain has changed in the five years since I've been there. Um, the numbers have changed. The dynamics have changed. Um, you know, the, the global warming is having a bit of an effect as well. So um, you've got to look at all of these things and, and work out, you know, you, you don't climb it because it's there. You climb it because everything is right and just feels right and is well planned for you to climb it. Um, and, you know, whether that's 2022 or not, that's my next mission. But between now and then, I've got to figure out how to put lots of mountains in my way so that I can rebuild a lot of the skill, get back up to 7,000 meters, get back up to close to 8,000 meters and work out, you know, I'm five years older now. So work out what my body after having loads of pie and sitting around the place and, you know, enduring all of the different things that life has thrown at you since then, whether you're the same person in terms of being able to get to that altitude as you were. And if you're not, what do you need to change? So how does the plan need to change? Because you're, you yourself are a variable in the plan as well, you know? That's very true. Um, well, I really appreciate you taking the time here and uh, t- uh, taking us through that. I think uh, I think there's a lot of lessons to be to be gleaned from it. Um, one last question I had was um, just around, because I suppose, the nature of climbing itself. And we kind of touched on that a little bit over the last couple of minutes. But, you know, it's, it's kind of... On one sense, it's a very individualistic kind of pursuit, but on the other on the other hand, you can't do any of it without the help of your teammates. And I'm just wondering what what lessons have you learned around kind of teamwork um, to uh, in your whole experience of going up the seven, or attempting the seven summits. I think maybe the biggest lesson is that when you're actually on the expedition, you have to be almost like a good soldier. Um, it's not a time while you're on the expedition to be questioning, you know, the plan, the, the route, the methods, um, the preparation has to be done before you go. But once you're on the expedition and roles have been assigned, you really have to respect that hierarchy and you really have to listen to the people when they tell you, you have to turn around or you have to keep going or you have to go faster or whatever it may be. So you, you, you learn that these people aren't offering you an opinion. <laughs> it's a little bit stronger than an opinion uh, and you need to treat it as such. So, and, and you can imagine that a lot of the people who climb some of the high mountains, there's a lot of strong personalities. Yeah. Um, you, you don't get to exercise that personality on the mountains successfully in the same way that you might do in other parts of your life. Um, and you have to learn to, to, as I said, be a good soldier um, and to be cooperative and to be, you know, to be nice and to be friendly because it's a long time. You spend two months on Everest. Imagine spending two months with some people you, you didn't particularly like. <laughs> in close quarters. In close quarters and in difficult situations. And you may have to pep them up on one day where they're – you can imagine on all those rotations, you might have an awful time on your first rotation to camp one or camp two and you might fly it for the rest of the time and in between what you need are people who can lift you up Um, and the Sherpa will instruct and guide and help but your teammates really are the ones that are going to play that role of being able to to lift you up and you have to play that role with other people while not lifting them too far outside their comfort zone that they might get in trouble you have to work out because you're in close quarters with them how you're going to cooperate well as a team um, it doesn't work if you're if all you're thinking all the time is how much of an ass somebody is, or you're trying to solve some crisis in your head. You have to really try and empty your head and cooperate at a level that you don't get the chance to do otherwise. 
Uh, it's a very pure form of cooperation in one sense, um, but it, it can't bring any of the drama of ground level with it because it will drain physically all of the energy out of your body at a time and a place where you need to conserve energy. So there's a, it, it's important to follow instruction just as it is in the middle of the COVID-19 thing we're in at the minute. It's important okay. to follow good instruction. Yeah, stay inside, folks. Stay inside. <laughs> Look, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time, Paul. Um, best of luck with Everest 2021 or 2022, whatever you decide to do. Uh, I'll be uh, following your progress with interest. Um, where can people find out more about you? I know you run your own business as well, if you want to give that a plug. Yeah, I run my own business. I, I design digital applications for aerospace, um, which has very little to do with um, climbing mountains, but the company is called Seven Summit Solutions. Um, so if, if folks want to find more about um, the mountains and the project and also a little bit of history about the Irish people who have climbed Everest and the 8,000-meter peaks, head on over to irish7summits.com or you can catch us on Twitter at uh, Irish7summits or on Facebook, Irish7summits as well. Great stuff. Fair play to you. Thanks, Paul. Good man. Pleasure. Cheers. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on LinkedIn, and please visit our website, insuretechireland.org. See you next week.